Welcome to Late Stage Radio. It's been quite a while. Um, we we actually recorded this one last month, but had some technical issues, so here we are again. And the guest is Cute Numina. Hey, what's he up, everyone? He is a transcendental shit poster, a self-proclaimed uh, SoundCloud philosopher, and host of Decode with Young Agamben. Q, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, really appreciate it. Had fun last time, and I'm sure we'll have fun this time as well. But, um, I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, I uh, just uh, I would consider myself a kind of a small time blogger in the theory side of Twitter, and uh, just write about general topics that interest me, including accelerationism, uh, philosophy, things of that nature. And yeah, I guess we're going to talk about some interesting topics today. Yeah. So today we have planned to talk about ontology, vaporwave, nostalgia, and a bit of 9-11, just so that most of our stuff from last time doesn't go to waste. Um, so I guess we can get started with ontology and just give her. Uh, so as Grafton Tanner writes in Babbling Corpse, he explains ontology through Jacques Derrida's Spectres of Marx. And he says, quote, The collapse of the Berlin Wall is at the heart of Derrida's Spectres of Marx, in which he first coins ontology as that which begins by coming back, end quote. So with that super, super brief explanation of what ontology really is do you want to go deeper and make it more accessible to everyone yeah so i mean the way that i got introduced to ontology is primarily through mark fisher which uh you know is not only heavily influenced by derrida and that's where you know his version of ontology comes from but also from uh, just the music scene that he takes place in uh, you know, Mark Fisher being a cultural theorist as well as a music critic. Uh, ontology is primarily in regards to, at least to Mark Fisher, is primarily dealing with uh, like the sonic landscape. But ontology primarily is like a metaphysical, um, I would say, concept. So, for example, as stated in that uh, brief quotation, uh, at least ontology or something that's ontological is that which um, is present at the same time that it's not present. Um, so essentially, that's 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 a way to kind of um, illustrate a concept by by Derrida, which would be that uh, ontology itself. The word is actually a pun, so it's the French word ontology. So ontology being the branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being. In French, uh, ontology is H-A-U-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Sorry, I had a <laughs> brain, brain hemorrhage right there. Um, so ontology has a silent H essentially, and it's that's the pun. It's that the H is present while at the same time not being present. 
So it kind of gets the nature of the concept around without going too deep into metaphysics. But it essentially, it kind of establishes in Spectres of Marx, kind of like that metaphysics of ghosts. So a ghost is that which is present, but it's not. So, you know, it's like the line of the, the communist manifesto, which is, um, you know, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Uh, that's, you know, from the communist manifesto and Derrida's kind of posing that in Spectres of Marx, which is kind of like the, that, you know, Marxism in a way, kind of like that meme, something arrives from the future or something, you know, gets pulled out from the past. And that it's, it's kind of this notion of we experience the present, um, you know, primarily through our recollection or our enjoyment, this kind of, you could say this pseudo nostalgia of the past, that's an aspect of it. But, uh, you know, it's just kind of this, uh, I mean, there's different avenues that, that we can go through this. Obviously the one that, that, that I mentioned is through Mark Fisher in terms of the, the sonic landscape, Mark Fisher saying how, and from a cultural land, uh, from a cultural standpoint, sorry, um, the music of today is constantly trying to recreate the music of the past. And so, you know, in order to kind of escape that, you know, different music genres emerged kind of like a vaporwave and, and things like that, which kind of were rehashes of the past of this, this retro, this kind of this retro futurism that kind of emerged. And so it's, I guess that's, that's just kind of like different avenues or different interpretations of what ontology could be, but just broadly speaking, I guess it's this return to the past, but not in like a naive kind of way. It's, it's this kind of like the return of the past, always being present, always haven't been here in a way. There's no- We're haunted by our past. Exactly. Culturally and like societal. <laughs> yeah. It's similar to the, the Marxist take of history repeats itself versus tragedy then as far as, am I correct? Yeah, so yeah, it's uh, versus tragedy then as a, as a farce. It, it's, it's essentially saying like that, like that dialectic is always already present. So it's always, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, the past and the present and the future, there's no linear distinction in a way. Mm -hmm. To get into ontology in a way that I think is more prevalent for the 21st century is to go back to Fisher's takes on music. So I believe you briefly mentioned Vaporwave. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, that would be a yeah. pretty concrete... Sorry, that would be a pretty concrete <laughs> example of uh, yeah. like ontology uh, yeah. or excellence. To take another point out of Babbling Corpse, in the chapter titled Spectral Presence, Vaporwave in the Uncanny, uh, Grafton speaks, speaks about how the old forms of media have a ghostly characteristic. So in a McLuhan vein, he says, quote, the horror then arises from electronic media's propensity to glitch and malfunction, throwing us into a state of disarray. And later on the page, he says, quote, haunted media transcends into the nervous system, end quote. Um, for vapor, we can get into the, the nature of the genre and what it critiques in a, um, in a bit. 
by vaporwave as a genre in essence is the haunting of the past within the music of today uh you know yeah that makes any sense yeah so it's kind of like that um you know it's the remix you know of old sounds like 80s pop and you know like rehashing it remixing it cutting up having like weird repetitions things like that and having like that specter of um like 80s consumerist optimism kind of um, being rehashed and repurposed to kind of not only alleviate like our nostalgia per- for the past per se, but also kind of, um, you know, it kind of, it, it's kind of like that quote says, it leaves us in a sense of disarray because at the same time, we're kind of lost tempor- temporally. We don't, you know, our, our sense of nowness and of the future is primarily predicated on, on the past. So, you know, it's, it's like the retro future, you know, it's like, which way Western man are you going to pick? Uh, 1950s, uh, what is it called? Like future utopianism, or are you going to pick uh, 80s retro futurist uh, communist patch or something like that? You know, it's, it's yeah, that the, the future is always, <laughs> exactly. It's pretty much just like the, the future is always rehashed or is always, pulling from the past like our our notions of the future are always um kind of constrained by our our previous notions or pre- previous conceptualizations of what the future can bring yeah so vaporwave being a genre of music it does fit into fisher's theory that there is no sound of the 2000s and vaporwave coming in 2012 i want to say 2011 or something like that where it really like came to be i believe without without knowing what the artists were doing, they took Fisher's theory of that and created a new sound of it. You know? The same way as Fisher was huge into jungle and that's a mash of reggae and drum and bass. Vaporwave took the synth like the way I see it, they took the synths of the eighties and the post nine eleven nature of the two thousands and hashed that into the sound that we know as Vaporwave. So I wanna get your takes on that. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right in many respects to that because, um, you know, it's like it's like these things, you know, it's like c- cultural production comes in like these waves. So, for example, you mentioned jungle music and it's this very kind of like, you know, these urban sounds, these urban aesthetics mixed with, uh, you know, these reggae drum cuts and, you know, these very like um, tribal sounds, you could say, these very primitive sounds. Uh, and you have something like vaporwave you mentioned which is like uh, synthwave which made its comeback i think in 2011 i think you're right i think uh with the comeback i don't know if you ever saw the movie drive i haven't um well first of all you should watch that movie great i should i should um for sure but the reason why it was like harvard is great was because of its emphasis on like its uh soundtrack Mm -hmm. and one of the opening songs is like this like synth wave kind of precursor to uh vaporwave and it's just kind of things like that you know you you have this aesthetic you have this preconceived notion of what the future is which you know in the 80s they kind of figured as as technology accelerated you would have more and more ways of cultural musical production and so with like you mentioned with vaporwave they they take these cuts they take these sounds these 
edits from the 80s and they rehash them, remix them to kind of give us a new sense of temporality post 9-11. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, to kind of say like, you know, contrast it or put a, a stark point at saying it's after 9-11 because uh, not only is, you know, as John Baudrillard points out, I think in, in um, what is it called? What, I don't know why I want to say fatal strategies, but I think it's called the spirit of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions how 9-11 is that event, which, or yes, that event, it's the true first event that makes up for all past non-events. And so in that way, it's kind of, it's a kind of like, the vaporwave artists were regaining our, um, what is it called? They were, they were able to reclaim a sense of temporality post 9-11 with the creation of vaporwave. Mm-hmm. And in like, to bring up another Baudrillard, Baudrillard point, uh, cultural damage has a piece titled what is the spirit of terrorism and under I'll, I'll link it in the show notes but under Baudrillard they have um, a piece on the symbolic and capitalist orders of value um, and in which they write quote Baudrillard's analysis takes its cue from the attacks of 9-11 in his account the main fault line revealed by the event isn't out of a clash of civilizations between east and west but a deeper rift dominant in all of the Western psyche, that between symbolic and capitalist orders of value. Where, and they continue to say, capitalist order of value is based on commodity exchange, all resources can be used until they are depleted, and time is represented along an axis. And they contrast it to a more ancient order of value, which is the symbolic, predates the paradigm. You know? Yeah, that's... Uh, so, I was going to mention, you bring up that kind of the paradigm shift between the regimes of value. And so you do have this very strict change, you could say. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned, I think it's the book Symbolic Exchange and Death. I think that's what it's called, where kind of Baudrillard flushes out this distinction. Um, He makes the difference between potlatch economies or economies of gift, you could say. So in where and that's the battalion, mm-hmm. battalion Bata- term, yeah. or however the hell it's pronounced. Yeah, the the battalion um, notion of potlatch, which is, um, you know, for example, like if I go out to eat with my uh, my dad or something like that, or my my father in law, something like that, um, and they choose to pay for the meal they are essentially providing an instance of a gift. So whether it's to exert some sort of hierarchy or dominance, that is kind of like the, the exchange, the kind of like the metaphysical prior of that event. Um, if I were to provide a gift of equal value, such as, you know, exerting that I want to pay the bill or something like that, or, oh, okay, you can pay for the, you can pay for the food at this time, but I'll pay for the dessert or something like that, or I'll pay for the next meal. Then that's kind of where that it's not one-to-one. It's not a one-to-one exchange relation. It's a relation of uh, what we kind of like an exchange of sacrifice, what we're willing to sacrifice. 
So potlatching, I mean, another example would be when chiefs of a certain tribe would execute all of their slaves and they would just, you know, decimate an entire, an entire group of people or they would light them on fire or something like that. And it was seen as a, as a kind of like a, look, uh, I have this much power. I could replace my slaves really easy. It's, it's kind of asserting some sort of dominance and, and by you not risk, it's kind of this reciprocity that's expected. You were supposed to, in a way, do something even of equal value to cancel out that transaction or something even greater to kind of restore, you know, some metaphysical, um, equilibrium that was instantiated and so you see with the modern world this kind of hyper fixation on um, like utility value which is you know like currency exchange um labor time abstract labor time things like that with um modern e economics and so uh, it's funny that you bring up those two different regimes because i think that uh I think with those two in mind, I think you can you can kind of see like motifs of that in, in things like 9-11, for example, which is kind of like this expected reciprocity. It's like, okay, we're, we blew up the Twin Towers. Like, what is this expected next move? It's almost like a, uh, it's almost kind of like begging the United States to see what they would do next, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's pure, it's purely a symbolic action. Yeah. Yes. But the the point i like to do that um is <clears throat> a rift in the western psyche because through 9-11 uh, this also goes back to like i think the essence of ontology which is the the non-existence of linear time you know what i mean mm -hmm. wherein 9-11 to bring on like a fukuyama-ist type uh type of uh train of thought where he believed that the fall of the soviet union was the end of history yeah whereas the fall of whereas like the the events of not do, do you want to say something on fukuyama yeah so i think you're getting at a really good like important point which is like like you mentioned it's like the fall of the berlin wall is like kind of like the kind of like the staple of like the rise of neoliberalism and mm -hmm. kind of like the the Fukuyama thesis, which is the end of, of history, you know, like the neoliberalism is the end of history. That's where it all culminates. Um, and there's kind of like two ways to see 9-11, I think, or maybe like three ways, but the two that I'll focus on would be like, um, one as, uh, what is it called? 9-11 uh, being like the startup of history again. It's like, uh, you, you see that, oh, actually, no, uh, the Fukuyama thesis is wrong. This is why. Um, I'm kind of in that camp. But I see also the 9-11 the as like the true end of history, right? It's kind of like the, kind of like, okay, well, almost in a way, it's like 9-11 is the end of post-modernity, or you could say it, say something like that. And with with the end of post-modernity, what you, what you have is... Um, one, the rise of culturally, cultural, like capitalist realism, mm -hmm. which is just stagnation, to put it simply, in the simplest of terms, it's just kind of cultural, economic, social stagnation. And you can also view it as kind of like, and this is something else, this is where I would say there's a third view, you can see kind of like this meta modern position, which would be kind of like a combination of both, which would be 
it's the end of history. It's an end of a particular type of history, but at the same time, it recognizes that it's in that in that end of history. Not only does the stagnation lead to new potentialities for for time for what comes next, but um, yeah. I guess I just wanted to flush those three potential potential views. I guess. No, of course, of course. What what we got into last time was the the time aspect of 9-11 and how rather than looking at it through like the end of history and like those words I think we got into how 9-11 was the end of time you know in which the optimism of the pre-2000s of a bright future it was um like excluding Y2K you can say but uh the future seemed like there there was opportunity and there was nothing of like nothing too serious was going to change their way of life and then 911 happened and it created a cultural rift you know where in in the next decade after at least and even like till now we're living through the results of that and like time hasn't really truly progressed for the better after that i want to say because and like capitalism had its had its uh had its hand to play at that where if you watch uh michael moore's fahrenheit 9-11 he shows two clips of uh of these salesmen one of them was selling a catastrophe bunker or something like that it's like sit inside it's like the size of a of a small closet sit inside here and look out the window and watch as the world burns around you watch as the (laughs) <laughs> the chaos ensues and buy now and shit and the other was like a personal parachute <laughs> so if you were going to jump out of a building because of a terrorist attack or something you can have this little backpack on you that you can use to go down and it 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 takes notions of like the vaporwave critique of consumerism because consumerism really took an, another boom after it where like it plays into your point of like it was the true start of history i guess the true uh what was it again yeah like the not like the stagnation but like the 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 end of like one history i guess but like the start of like a new potential for for time to start again yeah so it was the rise of um a second boom to consumerism outside of like the whole frankfurt school type of uh critique of it i want to say and um it was the it added on to like the increase of totalitarian neoliberalism i want to say where it's like it's it plays more into the hand of like the slippery totalitarian nature of uh of like capitalism that we're in today and you're very focused on time and like you do a lot of reading and research on theories of time so so i don't just keep on rambling <laughs> do you yeah, want to give her on uh yeah, I was gonna on, mention because you theory. you touch up on like a lot of things that I that I'm kind of like excited to <laughs> kind of just pick at. Um, the first one would be, you know, it's kind of like it's funny that you mentioned with that uh, the whole notion of um, this notion of history, I guess, or historicity as time. You can you explain of, historicity? Yeah, historicity would just be kind of like. Um, like thisness or how do they say it? Like just history as, as it plays out, I guess. Okay. Um, 
So for example, the whole distinction between like these epochs or these, these eras of consumerist capitalism, it's kind of like that whole notion of capitalism can't die of um, contradiction. And so there's, there seems to be like, um, at least under capitalism, there seems to be these shifts, you know, it, it goes from uh, one epoch of capitalism, you know, it's like Lenin said, capitalism, you know, imperialism is capitalism. And yeah, the high stage of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, Mao's like, uh, you know, actually, no, the, I forgot what he, I forgot what he mentions, but this is late, this is late stage capitalism. You know, the Marxist, the Marxist critique of what late stage capitalism continues. Um, I think that's important to flush out in vaporwave because it's, I see vaporwave as twofold. I do see it as a critique of partly like if you were to say like the Marxist critique of vaporwave is that it's a critique on consumerism by kind of like eroding the, the glossy aesthetic uh, with this gloomy, hauntological, um, as Mark Fisher puts it, this weird and eerie uh, mode of being. So, you know, it's like this, you know, it's like you can have McDonald's, you know, and that's like, it's this haunted, like almost grotesque image of haunt, of McDonald's. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's this, um, you know, it's, it's almost like that, that notion of, you're you're haunted by the present as much as you are by the past in a way um mm-hmm. but then too I, I i see vaporwave also as a um almost like a like an exaltation of that same neoliberal mindset of that consumerist project so in a way there's that's where that aspect of nostalgia comes in where it um it looks back at it with uh, what is it called? Rose tinted shades. Is that the saying? Yeah, yeah. Rose tinted glass. Yeah, um, and I think that's partly that's why the aesthetic of vaporwave is kind of like these neon colors. Besides the fact that they're just cool, but yeah, I think I think there's an there's an added element of that that it it really does look at the past. That this you know you could say maybe like late '80s through the '90s up until maybe like 9/11, uh, early 2001. Yeah. You see this era of you know hyper consumerism, neoliberalism. One, it really produced actual opportunities for most people, um, and it's always seen as this like this era of like good times. I think um, you know that's also when with the rise of the internet, of Web 1.0, and the dot com bubble, you saw a rise in like speculative assets, things like that. But you saw a certain kind of like cybernetic cyberpunk optimism that i don't think we've seen until recently mm-hmm. um, a cyber futurist yeah that that cyber futurist future and and it and it's it's i forgot who says this i know i only know the quote in spanish but it's kind of like that definition of the avant-garde which is like the you know the avant-garde is that which um takes a position for that future that's to come uh they're awaiting a future that's to come. I, I think it sounds really, really nice in Spanish. I'll just say it for, for the audience. It's uh, esperando por un futuro por venir, which is you, you're literally waiting for a future that's arriving. So in, in a way, it's like just linguistically, it's like the, the future is coming from, you know, that like that Nick Land meme of the, 
the future, what is it called? The near China arrives from the future. You see that real sense of optimism in the nineties and um, with web 2.0, you kind of see like a, a certain cynicism emerge and web 2.0 is just kind of like the rise of like Facebook bug internet where everyone's making shit apps and just kind of has a very terrible time online. Um, and you see, you see that kind of out of the emergence of like 9-11 out of, you mentioned this like rise of neoliberal totalitarian governments, not that they weren't already present. Cause I mean, I mean, I, you, you see kind of notions of this um, with thinkers like Jill Deleuze and his postscript on societies of control. But I think you see like the real, like emergence, you know, like the, like the kind of like the, the paradigm shift onto these hyper societies of control where they, you know, you have the, the rise of TSA, which by all means and purposes is useless, but it's like, it's like the most grotesque form of like hyper invasion on yeah. like individual, um, yeah. like just individuals based on preconceived prejudice that's completely geopolitical and is completely removed from reality. Yeah, and that shit with TSA went global. Um, I remember me and my family were traveling to Lebanon and we had to have a layover stop in Italy. I remember the workers there had let everyone pass by and we were left to the back to be quote-unquote randomly checked if we had any suicide vests on, if we had any bombers that on us or any shit like that. And it's like, like shit like that, you know, it's like completely like, you know, it's like the safety theater. It's just to kind of like keep the, the indoctrination of, um, you know, why did we go to war in the Middle East? And it's just kind of like this boogeyman of, well, we're trying to maintain domestic terrorism, but the real, or actually not even ter- domestic terrorism, just terror, like external forces of terrorism, you know, yeah, we should be the scared. The war on terror. You know, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like the war on terror. You know, with the 80s, you had the war on drugs. Um, Even throughout the ninth, like the 20th century, it was the big war was the war on communism. Yeah, so you, you there's know? always like a, a, a spook, right? There's always some sort yeah. of, um, you know, thing, this big bad that, you know, the state kind of just uses to justify its uh, dominion over the subject. And I think that's even hyper-present with, uh, capitalist like neoliberal democracies because if they're completely liquidating their adversaries they're completely liquidating the regimes that could be otherwise you know these other canceled futures to use a term by mark fisher if these canceled futures are no longer viable options then you know capitalism and its and its search for infinite growth always has to find a boogeyman or always has to find that which it has to overcome that's that's mm-hmm. built in into its nature so um you know that if that's the logic of capitalism just like as an inorganic mode of production as something that's not just you know just not just politics you know the political manifestation of that in neoliberalism is you know the the constant search for the other yeah and can you go into a little bit of cancelled futures yeah so mark fisher goes into that in his book um goes through my life Ontol- writings on ontology and depression Oh, I really got to read that. My God. It's, it's, it's a really good book. Um, he talks about how, you know, canceled futures. I mean, this is where his notion of ontology really kind of picks off. 
So he quotes, the slow cancellation of the future has been accompanied by a deflation of expectations. There can be few who believe that in the coming year, a record as great as say the Stooges, Funhouse or Sly Stones, there's a riot going on will be released. Still less do we expect the kind of ruptures brought by the Beatles or disco. The feeling of belatedness of living after the gold rush is an omnipresent as it is disavowed. Compare the follow terrain of the current moment with the fecundity of previous periods, and you will quickly be accused of nostalgia. But the reliance of current artists on styles that were established long ago suggests that the current moment is in the grip of formal nostalgia, of which more shortly. So, I mean, that's where, you know, he goes into that whole notion of what's the sound of the, you know, you can recognize the sound of the 50s, the sound of the 60s, the sound of the 70s, or even the 80s. But once you start getting to like the sound of the 2010s, for example, he kind of, he kind of posits like you, you wouldn't be able to. Um, and so he has that thought experiment and he's like, beam anyone back from like the 1970s, for example, to present day and you showed them some sort of song, uh, you know, they might be a little bit surprised, but they, they wouldn't be listening to something that they'd be like completely dumbfounded by. Or even take someone from the 90s and show them something from the 2000s, they'd be like, what is this? This is just like- This is just the 90s. Out. Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of a refutation to this, but I don't know if you had any quick comments on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm one to more or less agree with uh with fisher's notion of sound that there is no sound in in post uh in like the 2000s and post 9-11 but but like i mentioned before like i do think the sounds of the 2000s are a critique of the past and and just specifically looking at vaporwave and like to go to like your consumerist uh point on mcdonald's i'm, I'm guessing you're talking about the saint pepsi video for enjoy yourself where you have just the crippin McDonald's ad and that is a burger. good song. It's a fantastic song, <laughs> but the, the video is just yeah. So good. it just repeats: enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. It's a fantastic sample, by the way, um, and the visuals are just McDonald's, the moon, Coke, and burger, and it's just it repeats it to the point of um haunting <laughs> for lack of a better term yeah i was gonna yeah mention the, to kind of plug some of my my own shit here um let's freaking go <laughs> um that reminds me of kind of like this you know just to kind of connect it to some of the concepts that me and my co-host young are working on we're working on this kind of like this repurposing of what we call neo-vitalism <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is this notion of like, um, you know, you, you have your accelerationist critique, you have these critiques of kind of like despair of capitalist realism, things like that. And so with taking these as ontological or metaphysical or even political presuppositions, where do you go from there? And so I feel like vaporwave is kind of like a, I would say like a, a precursor, like a proto neo vitalist genre, and I say that because you know it, it you know it has this 
critique of capitalism in a way where it's kind of critiquing that it never that capitalism never fulfilled what it was set out to do which was you know to kind of use that um saint pepsi song which is you, you never really got to enjoy yourself you, you know all of the fake uh, advertising pr lies of uh neoliberal world democracy world capitalism decentralization all of these these dreams were pipe dreams and they never really occurred but um but then you have the the kind of the neo-vitalist position that we're advocating for which is kind of saying not the opposite but it's kind of saying that you did have certain emancipatory liberatory functions in, in the 90s and we're kind of seeing that pick up again with like the rise of web 3.0 and cryptocurrencies, the interest in blockchain technologies, things like that. And it's not to kind of necessarily say like those things are going to save us, but kind of ride the same emancipatory wave. Something like vaporwave is, is kind of along that, that line, you know, it, right, it straddles this, this fence between critique and I wouldn't want to say like naive nostalgia, but it does have this, this sense of, of looking back in a way. It, 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 it does advocate for some, some sort of retrospective retro retrospective it's like a tre- retrospective double take or something uh you know it's like where where can we salvage what what was good of these times what was good from these previous epochs tanner says something about that at the end of his book but in terms of crypto and whatnot i asked you this last time and this like panders towards like the twitter shit poster <laughs> philosopher does blockchain what, what was it? Does bulk, does blockchain fix the the, the, the problem of space time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you go deeper into that? Yeah. So, just to, I'm gonna just do a super brief TLDR. Um, but essentially, that that quote is kind of from Nick Land. His whole thing on his whole book on blockchain. And, Did it come out yet? Uh, he's written part chunks of it. I don't know if it's finished. Um, probably up on his Substack. Um, I think it was on his old website, Xeno Systems, but that got nuked. So I don't know where you can find a full copy of it. Um, I know there's archives, but I, I, I think I have a PDF version of it. But cryptocurrency is kind of like this magnum opus <laughs> about blockchain technologies. Um, and in it, Nick Land is staking the claim that blockchain what it does is it gives us a it brings back this notion of linear time and i'm just going to shelve up any arguments i'm just not going to completely i'm going to completely ignore them not address them anybody advocating against this because i'm just going to present the view which is he's saying that there's a sense of linear time with blockchain because with blockchain the nakamoto consensus that it uses is stipulated on succession and so the Mm -hmm. kantian notion of time is based on successive events you know you have cause effect cause effect and it's a sequence so you can kind of chart these out and that's true with the blockchain consensus method um you know you have a previous block its succession is stipulated on you know the the hash or what makes that block unique you know, also being validated by the next block or, you know, the, all of the network has to validate that the, tra- the transactions are valid, that the ledger is valid for the next block to be sequenced into the blockchain. And because it does this 
pseudo autonomously um, decentralized. There's no overarching system or or central node or hierarchy that's you know that's commanding this. Because of that, it's kind of returning to this you know like I mentioned this older modernist version of time, which is lin- linear time. It's it's Kantian time in the purest sense because it is pure absolute succession. Um, given that we live in a Einsteinian paradigm of time, which is saying that time is relative to the observer. So if you're in a particular time and space quadrant, um, you know, your time or your time frame is different than another observer's at a particular spatio-temporal coordinate. So it's, you know, that's where that notion of time relativity comes from. But Nick Land is saying, no, there is linear time, there is the successive time and the blockchain because it exists proves that time has to exist, at least in some non-rudimentary level. We must remember that this is Nick Land. <laughs> he, it's that, uh, what's it called, that Reddit? <laughs> I are, I am very smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Nick Land's uh, Twitter, pretty much. Neo-futurist Shanghai uh, monarchy type shit. <laughs> like the, more, the more decentralized we get, the more hierarchies emerge. <laughs> boys gnarly to say the least but yeah that's kind of like the i don't know the as simplified i guess i i I could do it without using his neologisms and jargon if you want to know nick land and but don't want to read any of his shit urbanomic has an episode where they just got uh an ai to read his essay hypervirus Oh, the <laughs> zero. <laughs> yeah. And it's 15 minutes of just pure Nick Land. So, <laughs> so for anyone who wants to listen to it then, or wants to get a gist of who this guy is, <laughs> I think listen to that. I'll, I'll also link it in the show notes. But yeah, to go back to, <laughs> to go back from, from uh, Homie to, to Vaporwave. Um, I mentioned this thing at the end of Tanner's book where in his chapter called Sick and Tired 9-11 and Regressive Culture in the 21st Century. I'm just going to read a little bit and I want to get your takes on them. So he says, he poses the question, quote, are we doomed to a future in which we yearn for the cliches of the past to ease our anxious, frantic minds and bloated, cancerous bodies? End quote. He, he goes on to ask, can we no longer recognize our very nostalgia for a time before globalized capitalism is being commodified and sold back to us? And then later on, he says, as I mentioned in the introduction, listening to Vaporwave, an alternative to both the mainstream music and media industries, is one way to resist these massive complexes that promote hype and image and run off the pro- and run on profit, very often at the expense of the music itself. Several aesthetic elements of Vaporwave are seeping into the mainstream, yet its political sting, its jarring indictment of consumerist culture, must not appear even at the mainstream level. He finishes off with says, journalistic uh, edits we'll do the squared brackets for this vaporwave invites us to react emotionally to a genre of music that has subversive potential so and at that he finishes off the book with fanta- with a fantastic line that says there's no way out of this night this cultural nightmare because he says vaporwave is like purgatory in a way in terms of its culture and genre it's like a mall if you're yeah. into vaporwave, you've heard of Mallwave. Yeah. yeah, so um I think this brings up an aspect of like non-space. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'll link both your articles on non-time and non-space below. But I feel like these are kind of like these two emergent phenomena that were kind of like hyper fixated by things like COVID-19. I think anybody, obviously, who lived through the pandemic uh, would know exactly what I'm talking about in those two articles. But just to kind of flush them out briefly, because I think they do really tie well with what you just mentioned, those quotes that you read off. I think that we are living in some sort of like purgatory. And I think that's even more evident um, now, uh, not just like temporally, like materially, you know, like a lot of us are stuck at home or Zoom classes are still a thing and, you know, things of that nature. Living through an Edward Hopper painting. (laughs) You know, some some of us are coming out of quarantine, but overall we still have this like stagnation of time. But I think the, the point would be that, um, you know, vaporwave, it's like I mentioned, it's kind of like twofold. It, it critiques the culture. It, crit- it critiques this like neoliberalist, capitalist, consumerist mentality or this mindset. But it doesn't offer anything new per se. It doesn't, you know, it's kind of like fixated on on the past or mm-hmm. its critique is insofar as it, it didn't material or like nothing new materialized from these promised futures. Um, but in a way, I think that now with COVID-19, we have like this like sense of like vaporwave, like, like mall non-space realism, which is kind of like this um, notion of like, you know, it's like, it's like we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic. You, you would go to like the store and you couldn't because like it was an empty parking lot and all stores were shut off and like everything was quarantined. And, you know, you realize like you go to a parking lot during quarantine, you know, like early 2020 and you realize like, these non-spaces, these kind of like, like these, these mall, like glorified hallways exist only because only in nature to, to uh, perp up or prop up or like function like neoliberal capitalism. So like, for example, you go, you go to the mall and reality, in reality, the mall is just like this non-space of what, what we see now, which is just kind of like aggregate websites on Amazon or like on yeah. the internet. So you know, the the mall was just kind of like this precursor for like the true virtual non-space, which is online shopping. If you really think about it, you go to you go to Paxson, for example, or you go to Zoomies.com or name your online store. And, you know, you look through the shoes, you you go through the 3D renders and you you shop, but you're not actually interacting with physical space. You're, you're interacting purely with this two dimensional flat flat object. and I think that's kind of like the ontology of vaporwave in a lot of ways. It's this, this thing that kind of presents itself in this two-dimensional flat, um, like aesthetic in a way, but there's no real depth. And it's twofold. In that lack of depthness, depthness, you see it um, in a way kind of break away from that. Like, oh, there's almost like an added element. Like, oh, it's, it's, it's pure style. So there is an element of depth to it some sort uh, of some sort of way but it's kind of this flattening of material reality you know it's this kind of you know like I mentioned like parking lots are just you know you look at a parking lot and it's like what the fuck is this it's just a structure for holding cars so that people can go do their consumerist activities they literally would not exist otherwise Um, yeah or or even like like I mentioned the mall like most of them are dying if you go to any small town you see like a, a mall strip and it's like it used to be a mall it used to have like a hobby town usa or some shit 
but now it's yeah. like some fucking spa 7-eleven or yeah some some 7-eleven or some some other bullshit and so that 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 gets to that notion of like you know a non-space you know it's like this there used to be spaces where people would you know gather around and have cultural production and and interact with each other the markets things like that um yeah but now we don't really have that if anything we only have that in place of like things like twitter or and even then it's kind of superficial but you know it's like where do you go and interact and, and share ideas or concepts or, or anything with people you go online to twitter to ship post and that's that's it that's your cultural production that's your cultural um sense of sociality and it's like everybody has these parasocial friends on twitter and everything but mm. at the end of the day it's 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 you're just perpetuating your alienation we're all we're all wojacks yeah <laughs> for sure um to like truly see a non-space like you mentioned like uh, a strip mall go to any suburb and just go to like where you drive enough and you'll you'll find that it's literally just a big box store a little pizza shop chain and there's like a gas station right beside it that that's a non-space and it's it's the most bleak thing you'll you'll witness if you truly sit and wait long enough it's kind of like you know it's like the grotesque aspects of consumerism it's like of course you know the things that kind of linger by or, or remain are you know the most basic forms of shit uh consumerist which would be like you know 7-eleven or some sort of gas station or mcdonald's which exists in so far <laughs> or a walmart yeah. which exists yeah. in so far as their uh you know financial monopolies have the funds to maintain them running even when yeah you know they, they dry out and suck up other spaces which used to exist you know it's like most people are not going to go to their local coffee shop to get bread if the bread that they get at their local coffee shop is like five dollars compared to the one dollar bimbo uh dry piece of shit um white starch hyper commodity thing that you can buy for like 98 cents you know it's like it's a, it's a desert of it's a desert of the mind um yeah capitalism is dead long live capitalism <laughs> vaporwave <laughs> is dead long live vaporwave yes sir i'm gonna say a, a debord quote because me being me I have to. So he does He does mention here in, in Thesis 130, in his chapter, Time and History, it says, quote, frozen societies are those which slowed down their historical activity to limit and maintain the constant equilibrium, their opposition to the natural and human environment, as well as their internal oppositions. If the extreme diversity of, in, of institutions established for their purpose demonstrate the flexibility of... <clears throat> of the self-creation of human nature, this demonstration becomes obvious only for the external observer. For the anthropologist who returns from the historical time, in each of these societies, a definitive structure, structuring excluded change. Absolute conformism in existence and existing social practices with which all human possibilities are identified for all time has no external limit other than the fear of, of falling back into formlessness into formless animality here in order to remain human men must remain the same unquote so let me get your take on that yeah I'm, um, i mean kind of like it kind of just reminds me of that whole notion about like regimes of time so we were mentioning earlier in, 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 the, in the cast that um 
you know, we, we see the, these changes, these stark changes, these contrasts of these epochs. We saw a domination of, you know, you could say like the the Cold War, you know, the, the end of the Cold War, the end of these two, these two potential futures that could be about, you know, the, Leo, the neoliberal potential and the communist potential. And with the fall of the communist potentiality, we saw the global hegemon, uh, the global hegemon, which is neoliberal democracies kind of take root. And, you know, you kind of see that, you know, with 9-11, you saw kind of like, oh, well, actually JK, um, you know, neoliberalism itself is, is uh, you know, it's kind of a failed, uh, you know, a failed ideology. It's almost kind of saying like, with the fall of communism, it, it was only, it was only like a, a timing issue here that communism failed before neoliberalism, right? You know, it's only a couple of decades that neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalist societies lingered on before they turned into the same thing, a totalitarian regime of desolence and, mm-hmm. and garbage. It was always a slippery totalitarianism under neoliberalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you would never see... No, no, go ahead. I was going to mention, I think even Mark Fisher talks about this in Capitalist Realism, where he talks about how neoliberalist capitalist democracies are you know the main criticism of capitalists would be oh well under communism you would have all this bureaucracy but under the managerial class of neoliberalism you see an even high an even more hyper form of bureaucracy take hold Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're free insofar as you can sign all of these waivers just to acknowledge that you know there's no one liable or you know you're you're free to indebt yourself perpetually so that you can live, live the rest of your life paying off debt and, and things like that. So it's like, yeah, neoliberalism does promise you freedom, but you know, it's a very specific type of freedom. It's a very mm-hmm. modern, <laughs> modern secular form of freedom. You're free as far as you're allowed to be free. Yeah. And that freedom is primarily predicated on, you know, the staples of liberalism. I mean, in the United States, at least that freedom is directly inferred from, you know, constitutional freedoms. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you try to do anything outside of that constitutional freedom or that notion of constitutional liberties. And, you know, however the state chooses to interpret that at the particular time, then, you know, it creates a state of exception, which, you know, you can see that with whether they're right or wrong with, um, you know, this notion of like the, the left, which is always canceling people or deplatforming, you know, right-wing figures, things like that. Um, whether or not that's... Lib- I'd say the liberals rather than leftists. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're no, right. Go, the, go, no, go go ahead on your point. The no, I should say the libs because I, I I think that's the thing too with like right wing Republicans, Democrats, and all of them. They're all libs, so they're all yeah, they're all to the right. But you know that's the kind of like the very reality of it. You know, it's even under neoliberalism where you supposedly have some sort of freedom of speech, you do still have that uh, that censorship by more and more often than not not the government but these private institutions these uh these companies of which all they you know their real profit their real motive is profit motive um which is kind of like a sinister almost uh, malignant view of, of society mm-hmm. and they're they're like in terms of corporations they're pushing so much shit just to make like the general person see them as okay like i'm pretty sure like i'm sure you've seen the bloomberg opinion articles and like the wall street journal opinion articles which are like actually corp uh corporate towns are okay or that there, there, there was some bullshit on that where 
I'll try to find like some stupid one and put it in the show notes, but it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? It's like, like the... here we are. In... No, go ahead. No, sorry. What were you gonna say? No, I was gonna say like, especially now in COVIDian times, where like the working, the working class, and like the lower middle class got their shit rocked, and these billionaires made off with what was it? Musk, Bezos, and Tim Cook, Tim Apple, or some shit said uh, they gained over a trillion from the pandemic alone last year. God knows it's only gone up. Yeah, it's just a mass redistribution of, of wealth. But um, I was going to mention how the the landscape right now is just kind of, you know, you see these corporations kind of standing up for these like social justice campaigns and things like that, you know, like Coca-Cola, I think like the owner has like this Coca-Cola fund where they fund like two billion, no, I want to say two billion, <laughs> like two million dollars or some bullshit to like fight injustice and social prejudice and things like that. But it's like, you fucking idiots, fucking Coca-Cola is, you know, this fucking capitalist corporation, the system by which they function perpetuates things like social and racial inequalities, uh, you know, the perpetuation of the the state insofar as it perpetuates the industrial military complex and the industrial um, industrial prison complex so it's you know it's like how much money did they put like you know it's kind of like this, yeah. this cognitive dissonance that I see in people it's like yeah I'm gonna support Coca-Cola I'm gonna buy into their products or I think Slavoj Zizek has this thing about Starbucks you know it's like you support Starbucks you you pay a little extra for the they, coffee. They give five cents to stupid kids in Guatemala. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, <laughs> as Jesus. he says. Um, yeah, you. Yeah, you, it's like you, you pure ideology. A, pure ideology. <laughs> you you participate in it insofar as it makes you feel good. That's where you yeah. get venture capitalists like Bill Gates and his his foundation, which he just writes off in tax. You know, they completely bypass the, you know, the need for their taxation, and you know, you could even if even if you had like some sort of social welfare systems with their taxation, not even that much, like just, you know, just a fair tax, not complete tax evasion, but something there, you could establish hardier, sturdier safety nets, but it's like, they don't even care about that. Like their fixation is profit driven. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Bezos is trying to fucking start a space program, same as Musk. So they can go, colonize the asteroids and start their own libertarian yeah. commune and but fuck <laughs> you step Jupiter, snake, you know? but in space yeah, <laughs> yeah wasn't that wasn't that a slap to a face when Bezos thanked was like this is all because of the workers or whatever the hell he said this is thanks to you <laughs> and it's just like you know it's, it's that notion of like we we really do live under under some sort of capitalist realism you know it's what but it's it's not just that. It's almost like I don't know if you've seen the film *Idiocracy*. I haven't. There's there's um, a lot I have to watch. <laughs> uh, well, there's that there's that movie *Idiocracy* where, where it's kind of like making fun of like democracy or kind of like the United States government. But in reality, it's it, I feel like it's less idiocracy and more of it's like just you know what it what it is. It's a, it's a oligarchy of rich white. I wouldn't say white, but rich, rich, uh, rich whites, rich whites, uh, (laughs) rich people, uh, rich, uh, people of European descent, (laughs) you know, take that as, as however you like, but, uh,
that is just the reality that we live under. And I can't change you. I can't even touch you. Paul, why not? Because the past is inviolate. The past is sacred. It belongs to those of you who live in it. It's not for interlopers. For people who are just passing by, look in, and wish they were a part of it. Where are you going? I'm going back. Back to where I came from. Back where I belong. I asked you last time what you think the legacy of 9-11 was. Can you, can you reinstate that? Yeah. So I think like the primary legacy of 9-11 is kind of like that. I mean, we've already touched upon this, but it's kind of like that paradigm shift of time that we saw. You know, I mean, alongside with the whole war on, war on terror and, you know, the rise of hyper societies of control and, and things like that. I think one of the biggest le- legacies was the, 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 the recognition of our notion of time which I think was primarily, uh, you know, if you, if you could have said, the two, you know, Y2K, you know, 2001 was going to be the first year post Y2K, you know, it's like 2000 and then 2001, it's like, okay, well, mm-hmm. the future is now, let's see where this takes us. And we really did get a canceled future. I mean, look at the 2000s compared to the 1990s. It was just 1990s 2.0. Um, yeah. And by all means and purposes, I mean, you saw the rise of Facebook, which literally is a capitalist version of the uh, like digital information registry that the NSA had. Um, yeah, it's only gotten worse. And it's, it's only gotten worse. Even the wars are the same, eh? You had IDOT in the 90s and IDOT in the early 2000s. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly. Even the same, the same conflict. I mean, we were, the United States was in, you know, pretty much Afghanistan for what the last twenty years, literally. Yeah, we we've seen their success there, right? Yeah, uh, way to go. We brought neoliberalism to there, insofar as we could use it as a function to trade. Um, yeah. I mean, like yo, at least like when the when the Soviets fled Afghanistan, they left with their pride. You know what I mean? The Americans, it seems like constantly, constantly, from from uh, Vietnam. To Beirut to to now Afghanistan, they're always fleeing and leaving their their men behind and shit. And it's always like, oh, we we went to help them, but it was their fault. They never wanted us and shit. Yeah, and it's it's all kind of like this big psyop in a way. Like I don't know. Like I never. I mean, you know, the, the whole Afghanistan war was kind of seen as this whole thing, or at least the narrative was that we were going to go over there to find this terrorist, Osama bin Laden, the big honcho. Um, but I don't think anyone, not even the people who bought into that narrative, actually believe that that's the reason why we were in the Middle East. Like, I just don't see how you can think that we, we threw away trillions of dollars into, <laughs> into foreign conflict um, over one dude, especially after, you know, he was essentially quote-unquote which you know you can get into conspiracy theories all you want but i mean it, can go. you can just say you can i can i i'm just being honest you know i'm pretty sure 
Osama bin Laden was a CIA asset of some sort. Like, this isn't even questionable, I, I feel. <laughs> the bin Ladens were in bed with the White House. Like, it's, it's not to say that Osama himself, but his family. Um, you know. I, I actually think as far as Osama was trained by the CIA, but... <laughs> well, yeah, the Mujahideen. They, they, um, like... <laughs> um, the Middle East is like, it's, it's where I'm from, so it's like where... I'm I'm super down to do a full episode on like just talking terrorism and shit, <laughs> but <laughs> but in terms of like the trillions, Common Dreams released an article last month, and like I'll put it in the show notes as well. But it says the headline is up to half of the 14 trillion spent by the Pentagon since 9/11 has gone to war profiteers. Yeah, like that's that's a true legacy of 9/11. You know, it's like you know, it's and, it, and like part of it is like the whole. I mean, there's. I mean, there's different layers and we can really go into them, but, you know, it's like the whole, the whole notion of what's it called, you know, you have this, you also have this fixation of, you know, the war on terror, but on part is also kind of like a continuation of the war on drugs. You know, it's, uh, I think after they, I think it was the U.S. was trying to go after the, the heroin fields, the opium fields in the Middle East. And then, you know, the poppy fields in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah, and then after I think it was after the Clinton administration left, you saw a resurgence of the the poppy fields, and it's like oh, a fucking course. You know, you had uh, you know the Bushes come into office in that administration, and it's like you see a you see a rapid surge in not just heroin addiction in the Middle East, uh, primarily Afghanistan, but you just see kind of like a rise in opium use just worldwide, and it's you know that, that you know that's 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 a true legacy of. The conflict, but at least politically, it would it would be uh, the United States lying in bed with, you know, like foreign affairs, at least in the Middle East, and then pretending like it didn't happen. Did you see the the one clip of in Afghanistan? I forget which news which uh, news agency did it, but they went and they talked to a soldier, to one of the American troops guarding the poppy fields. They're like, all right, so what are you what are you guarding exactly? And like, I'm. I'm preferencing this like I'm saying all this from what I remember if I can find the video I'll throw it down the American soldier said something to oh we're here so the Taliban don't take this opium and spread it around Afghanistan we're here to protect them <laughs> we're prote- <laughs> protecting this, this opium from the Taliban so that they don't spread it around this nation all they did was just bring it back to big pharma and I'll yeah. die on that hill you know, it's it's things like that. Uh, like I mentioned, it messes with our temporality because now you know we had COVID nineteen, and we are literally. You know, you, you we can argue about this, or anybody can present or you know present counterfactuals. But the reality is, is that the United States and a lot of other you know world superpowers they're taking advantage of the situation, which is you know you have. Um, whether it's leaked or whether it's you know again we can go into conspiracy theories all you want the fact is there is a virus and whether or not it it's killing the people that it is or whether or not it says it's effective or blah 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 you know the united states and these other world powers are taking advantage of people's people being scared you know it's it's the war on the war on biohazard or contagion or whatever and mm-hmm. You know, we've kind of been conditioned before because of 9-11. We've been conditioned to kind of allow the state to take these these exalted um, or these overbound, overstepping um, measures of, you know, surveillance, uh, control, monitoring, things like that. And and, and I, I think that's the truth that, if you know, if I was going to narrow it, narrow it down to like a quick slogan, 
would just be the legacy of 9-11 is, you know, the the the, the legacy of like a uh, mass surveillance. I, I, I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the hyper panopticon. Yeah. You remember when, and this goes into your point of like uh, surveillance and shit. Remember when uh, these phone companies, I'm specifically talking about Apple, when they released that update and it's like, oh, now we have a COVID tracker and we can now tell you if you've been uh, in close contact with someone with COVID and shit like that. Yeah. And you know, they've had a history of doing this stuff, like downloading that goddamn U2 album with (laughs) (laughs) on everyone's phone. But yeah, Edward Snowden has been having a field day with this, just writing about surveillance and, and all that jazz. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, you go from domestic, you know, surveillance, you know, virtual surveillance for the, you know, the, the stopping domestic terrorism, which that's still emphasized, by the way, because of, you know, things like the the riots, the January riots in the United States, things like that. Oh, my God. Have you? <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off. <laughs> have you seen the, the New York Times shit during 9-11 where it's like, oh, <laughs> January 6th was like a second 9-11 and shit like that? Yeah, they were kind of comparing the, the riots to they're like, it, it's a shame that this was on like the 10th. Uh, what is it? The 11th anniversary or some bullshit of. No, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. 20th, it was the 20th anniversary. Come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm still in like 2000s brain. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Um, the vapor, what vaporwave does to a motherfucker. <laughs> it's like I'm stuck in I'm stuck in the 2010s. Yeah, dude. Um, but yeah, no, I saw I saw that bullshit. That that was uh, the New York Times is just cringe. Like, you know, it's kind of seen sometimes as like the the bastion of uh journalism but there's some there's some writers in there that i'm <laughs> not a, not, no too too funny the, the the dying new york times but yeah but yeah i think the and we touched on that like a little bit through you through your through your point but the legacy of 9-11 solidified how extensive how expensive uh american exceptionalism can be i believe you know like we saw like within the very first few weeks of uh, of nine eleven, there was already white people committing terror against brown skin folk. You know whether it be. I, I mentioned this in the piece I wrote on on nine eleven and the politics of fear, but within the first two weeks after nine eleven, a sick a sick guy from uh, I want to say Texas got shot up, and the gunman later got shot and killed. The gunman later went and shot at a Lebanese man and an Afghan family, and then at the end he says, "I'm something to the fact of I'm I'm America first, basically. Like in essence, it was an America first quote, absolute hog." But <laughs> we we had that. Then through like boots on the ground footage in Iraq in 2003, you have troops going, "Hey, we're here to save these people." I don't get it. I freaking hate it here why are they why are they all against us and you know and like it, it like war is a topic i do want to touch on in this podcast but um like i do want to do a whole episode a whole a uh, couple episodes on wars but um you had that in an idot where like troops were committing war crimes and like hey we're here to help you you know when they're not stealing the gold of idotes and and throughout these 20 years, there's been doves that have been really calling for for war alongside hawks. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
so like it's it's weird because nine eleven brought up these genocidal hawks, genocidal uh, doves, and like it brought them out to full effect. Where like now with the withdrawal, with the the fleeing of Afghanistan, uh, you have Democrats taking their um, typical moral stance, talking about how, oh, what about the women and children of Afghanistan? What are the Taliban going to do with them? Uh, when the Americans are doing the exact same things that they're allegedly worried about. Um, plus, <laughs> along with the new Cold War on China. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole that's a whole thing, you know, the whole kind of like the geopolitical rise of China and, you know, China hegemony being like a clear, distinct thing that, you know, is on the horizon. Um, yeah. And especially with the, like the trend of the United States, you know, as it as it's been gutted and continues to be gutted in terms of uh, a world power, you know, it tries to stake its legitimacy um, any way that it can. But you know, if if our trend continues of you know decreasing our you know decreasing uh, birth rate, I'm sorry, it's not like a nationalist, but. <laughs> Uh, decreasing birth rate and you know uh, lack of robust as long as uh, you don't hit me with a 1488 then we're good <laughs> uh, robust what's it called um uh, manufacturing you know self uh, what is it called uh, self-independent or independent uh, world power then I think I think the United States is, is definitely uh, desperately trying to catch up to to China's momentum at this time but China has high-speed rails the Americans will never get to that. It doesn't seem like they will. <laughs> no, not unless it's private. Not unless it's, uh, what is it called? Privately uh, profitable. Yeah. There's no profit motive for for building a country around people. Uh, I think I think, I think think China, in a, in a funny sense, is it's the contradiction to that. You know, it's dialectically showing that there is a, there is a profit incentive. And maybe at a, a larger scale that the United States is not really thinking about, but Kind of, you know, really puts a, a stake to your claim. Not that it's your claim, but you know, the, the claim that no, no, of course. That um, you know, why not build? Why not build things for for the people for for the actual nation state? I, yeah, I will say, like we can end it off here because because it might cause a bit of controversy with the anti-China crowd. <laughs> it it's really a nation, like it's one nation. You know what I mean? Where everyone like uh, broadly speaking i'm saying like where where the people are connected you know what i mean where you can have a job from in beijing from shanghai and you can just take a high-speed rail and that would it'll take you a few hours to get there whereas new york to chicago by train is something to the fact of 19 hours they they truly did build like the infrastructure and all that around the people rather than here where we have dirt sidewalks and six-lane roads I'll ask you where it's a, it's a nation built on consumerist mentality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think you're, you're definitely right. I mean, I'm not a big critic of, of China. I, I think there's definitely areas where, where it should be critiqued, but um, I think that's where, that's where I'm just going to show my stuff once again. It's, you know, that's that, that neo-vitalist potential. It's like, what are, why are some of these global, global, superpowers what are they doing that's actually beneficial and i think setting up an economy like china where it's actually 
in some instances that's actually working for the people as opposed to like you mentioned the consumerist landscape uh, for just a few people who can afford those commodities or for the few people that actually produce whose companies not like they produce but whose companies produce those commodities i think yeah i think uh i think i'm 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 optimistic and i'm pessimistic i think i'm i'm in that position where that's Shijek talks about it or I have a I have a naive sense of optimism. It's like that that light at the tunnel at the end. It's like oh, there's there is a light at the tunnel at the end. But uh, I think that's where where I mean, Shishija kind of kind of converge where it's like that light at the end of the tunnel is just another train about to hit you. So <laughs> I think we can wrap it up there. Perfect. All right, cute. Where can the people find you? Um, you can find me at C N. I guess C Numina. <laughs> Sorry, I always get this mixed up. It's that C Numina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can also find me on Substack. The the best way to reach me is just on Twitter. I have all of this linked on my link tree. Um, I'm sure as uh, as on my you might uh, put that in the show notes. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, if you like any of the stuff that I brought up, you can follow me on my Substack. It's released every single week. Or at least I try to every single week <laughs> on Friday. That's good stuff on there. Um, yeah, and I, I just write about all this stuff. I primarily do focus on philosophies of time. And I'm currently working on a big project. It's... Uh, I mean, I already, I already made this uh, tweet, which is a book called Technolalia, which goes into um, philosophy of like, uh, what is it called? What I call hysteria techniques, uh, mass, uh, online mass delirium and things of that nature. So if you're interested in anything, uh, I would say vaporwave accelerationist, um, anything coming out of Deleuze and Guattari, definitely check my stuff out. For sure. And also check out Decode. Decode. Decode is my, my project with Young Gombin. And uh, we have four episodes out. Five episodes? I don't know. I, I lose track because I number them weirdly. But I think we have about five episodes out. Uh, definitely go check them out. Um, but yeah, go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast. Um, <laughs> Smash the like button. Smash that like. Uh, leave a good iTunes review. I know the whole thing. I, I it, <laughs> it really does. It really does help out the support and uh, the algorithm. Really does. You know, it, it really does affect the algorithm. So definitely check out this podcast. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and you can find me at underscore no fly with two Y's on Twitter. You can also check my Substack. Spectacular, spectacular.substack.com it is a joint it is now a collaborative platform with me and my homie kai and we'll gather some more details on that in the future and of course subscribe to this podcast <laughs> and all, whatever the hell you guys do <laughs> to boost it in the algorithm and yeah Thank, Thank you for coming on. Whatever happens, yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine.